and welcome to week four of Rare Book School. I'll have a little more to say about the books in this room after Bennett Gilbert's lecture. It's a great pleasure to welcome him to this podium. The long series of lectures, of which is, this is but one, used to be delivered in what was laughingly referred to as the antique splendor of Harkness Hall at Columbia, which some of you may remember was a dingy institutional green cave in, in the basement of Butler Library. I'm very glad that this whole program has been transplanted to a truly antique and splendid home, a leafier and happier home, and that it now has an lecture exhibition hall that gives it the promise of glory. It is this very great pleasure of speaking in this room for which I both thank and congratulate Professor Bellinger. In this talk, I will make the following points. First, that electronic information has put us in a position to rediscover the book. Second, that the history of book is a broad and complex part of the history of communication and thought. And third, that the printed book is a projection, an object in which people in the West have invested so much meaning that came to be a symbol of the soul itself. I hope that this will stimulate us to take a creative approach to the study of old books, especially to the curatorship and the exhibiting of collections of them. I have wanted to open up an area in which we will look at books not only as technology, not only as art or craft, and not only as text, not only as publishing history, but in the mode of being a book, in its own unique meaning and character, fully and essentially conceived. This involves considering not the scientific or scholarly nature of the book, but the emotional basis of our interest in books. Each of my points has been made before, and each is attended by a large literature. Furthermore, I will not here support any of my ideas with documentary completeness. I'm not presenting to you a scholarly study of a specific subject. I'm not a scholar of this sort because I don't have the time. I don't have the time because I have a different job. I'm an antiquarian bookseller. It is my conviction, based upon my experiences as a, as a bookseller, that these points are elements of an understanding of the book at a level so deep that it underlies all our work as scholars, collectors, and dealers. If such a basis, didn't, as scholars, collectors, and dealers, and indeed that there would be no scholars, collectors, and dealers if such a basis did not, in fact, exist. And it is my belief that, as a person, that the religious dimension of this attitude to the book even when it is expressed in ways we like to label primitive, is essential to justifying what we do. In other words, I think that there's a place in this world for the simple, primitive willingness to believe, and to focus that belief on objects that conduct us to the sacred, and the sacred to us. Books have done that in the West, and has served as an image of the freedom of the individual human mind. In the premier issue of the Los Angeles computer magazine, Wired, the author of an article on electronic libraries says that in the future, quote, instead of fortresses of knowledge, there will be oceans of information, unquote. This is now the image of books. They form walls, whether in bookcases or in stack ranges, ranks and rows of walls at which one looks from the bottom toward an imperceptible top, and the height of which one labors to scale. Electronic information, on the other hand, is splayed out in horizontal planes of endless circuit boards, oceans or fields, on top of which one floats seeking direction and bearings in the midst of its own currents. If you touch a book, you touch only its epidermis, not anything of knowledge itself. 
But if you touch the ocean, your hand is already in it. Electronic knowledge has no epidermis, no, no binding. You can't just float along the top of the ocean of information, as your eyes could scan the wall of books, because you must already know how to use some of the information even to get into the ocean. It seems harder to stand on the shore and look at this ocean than it is to stand in the library and look at the wall of books. This is because there is no shore, no three-dimensional situation, no physical separation, and no wall. The ocean of information expresses the seamless continuum of knowledge. A lot of text and data are slipping into this electronic ocean and away from the book. The printed and electronic media will probably always coexist, of course, and this coexistence will become more and more complex as time adds layer upon layer of the resonance of these two with one another. But the movement I have described is nonetheless ever more decisive and complete. With electronic knowledge, as in libraries of printed books, there's still, in a sense, a wall to climb, the great trouble it takes to learn and the greater torture required by any advance in knowledge. Computers have not changed this fact. But in a way, they can tie us more intimately to our knowledge because of the ways in which the user can modify the data or images. In this way, thus thereby giving the knower power over the known. In this way, computers or electronic knowledge can identify the knower with the known, leaving us always launched upon their ocean of struggle, just as they are rapidly tying the world together. We do not know our fate if we seek to escape from this web. For now, our most basic life and survival skills take us unresisting to our most complex science. Mankind now lives on this ocean of information. We have struggled long centuries to build a boat that enables us to navigate it, building often while in the middle of the ocean, sometimes sinking, but we have now found more seaworthy ships than any of our ancestors had. These technologies have become more useful than books in many ways, although studies repeatedly show that people prefer to read books for, for many reasons. As books have become less uniquely useful, it requires a greater effort of thought to perceive them, to find a place for them in our lives. In many ways, computers now seem more immediate and engaging and even more tactile. What is interesting about books has grown heavily mediated and more and more subtle. Books now have to be explained, and now that we have, know lots more about books than we did when we still had to use them all the time, they have become immensely slippery objects. The question this provokes about the future of books is akin to the question about the place of faith and religion that arose in the 19th century when science seemed to lead the march of progress, or the questions about the relevance of humanistic learning and culture that arose when materialism began to dominate education. These were all rearguard battles fought by the traditional culture. The answer for books is generally along the same lines as the answer to these other questions, that there must be a place in our lives for meditation, contemplation, and reflection, for memory and hope, for things so deep in and so far out that we cannot directly express or describe them. We can say that the printed book has a place in the liberal education, that it is part of how we encounter the outside world and learn so to reflect upon it and ourselves, that we might become better human beings and better citizens. But how exactly does the printed book do this? How can it, if its historical mission of carrying our text and data has now been taken away from it, or at the least, largely changed. Does not electronic information give us a fuller engagement with the world? Are there not many new creative powers in seeking and employing the power of knowledge at a computer terminal than with a book or with a whole library of books? There certainly are, at least as far as the technology goes. 
Mankind, of course, was created with no technology, no technology, and then just a little technology, and then with a pen, and then with a press. Nevertheless, what shall we do with the retired technology? I want to answer this question because I should like to avoid a prolonged death rattle for our love of the book. Instead of rationalizing this affection, I'd rather get to the heart of the matter. The ways in which books act on our minds can show us that although computers may mimic our minds, our minds are not very much like computers. The computer analogy of data processing is very narrow and misses the insights thrown on the matter by other models or metaphors of thinking, reasoning, and memory. And now that the printed book has been liberated from the burden of carrying our text and data, the swaying, tottering burden under which is staggered with wobbling knees, it can now appear more fully as an expressive object and recover some of the aspects and valency it had at its beginning when the burden of text was yet small. Freed from its crankled course, the printed book is no longer a tool but an object, an aesthetic, psychological, moral, intellectual, and philosophical object. As we use electronic information more and more, practically and concretely in our daily lives, printed data and text attract us for less practical and for more spiritual, subtle, and complex reasons. In this movement, we are rediscovering the book as a locus of meditation and contemplation. The kind of nature and meaning I'm talking about is so subtle that it can, it can exist even without the book itself. Books have this power even when they are represented only by the entry in a bibliography. A bibliography is a sort of virtual reality for books. It is a public memory in which books exist virtually, a shadow image of the intellectual and historical events that the printed books record and in which they participated. Books are so powerful that they can express themselves, that is to say, evoke images and stimulate reflection just by calling their name, as in a bibliography. So even the science of bibliography hasn't killed the book. When the book is a useful object, as a tool, has all but disappeared, we have the opportunity, opportunity to see something else, just as we understand a person differently when we stand in a disinterested position in relation to that person than we do when we want to use him. Books were originally made to be seen by a special function of sight called reading, and yet now they are, in a sense, invisible, or rather visible to a yet more refined kind of perception. Because of electronic information, all printed books are now old books, but very old books, the books that are objects coming to us from our forebears' culture, can express the meaning of the book more essentially than can later books. This expression I believe is strongest in books printed in the first century of printing, mutates over the following three centuries, and enters into its weakest phase with the proliferation of books in the last century and a half. I contend that for the history of the book, the Renaissance was a moment of purity, a moment when some kind of spirit entered into the book as text and image began to wrap around and to penetrate one another as they never had before, creating a new path of communication. The book could bring into the soul text and images and information and ideas with new power and consequence. Since we can now approach the old book, and especially the early printed book, in a new way because of electronic information, we have a quite different experience of the old book. This experience is the ground on which we can use the book to think about history, on which we can study printing history scientifically, and on which bibliography has grown into a study of the history of reading and of the transmission of texts, ideas, and images, in short, the history of communication. 
There are two sources of the value of the book in the study of the history of communication. The first is the better known. A book has a different kind of surface from works of art, its text. It is, a, it is literal and not representative. But the second is this. The book has a representative function as well, just like a painting, because it symbolizes or expresses with unique fullness all the aspects of the history of communication involving semiotics, epistemology, museology, literary history, artistic history, intellectual history, cultural history, economic history, religion and devotion, etc. We can use it to feel history or to study technically the history of printing. But behind these endeavors, old books have a special meaning for us that impels us toward working with them in the brilliant ways that have been developed in the last century and especially in the last quarter century, or just to collect them. This is a version of the, quote, paradigm shift that D.F. Mackenzie described when he said the bibliography must, at this stage in history, deal more fully with meaning in text and with the transmission and reception of meaning than it hitherto had done. And that therefore, quote, now all bibliography, properly speaking, is historical bibliography, unquote. And it is a version also of what those artists do who make livre d'artiste and of the work of conceptual artists working with the book as an object. The lifting of the burden of being a useful object from the book has opened up a vast new field for creative and scholarly activity with the book, as it has for book collecting. All of these activities are trying to express what is left in the book after its immediate utility is gone. I contend that this essence also impelled the earlier bibliographers, even the driest of them, and the earlier generations of collectors. But that before the computer age, it was very difficult to reflect on the impulse to possess physically or intellectually the rare and curious old book. Please note that I'm not describing this new era. I'm describing this new era not as one in which meaning is deconstructed and crushed under the suicidal nihilism called deconstructionism, but rather as one in which our encounter with meaning in history is even richer, deeper, tougher, and more authentic than ever before. Old objects gain meaning through time like a snowball rolling downhill. The cumulative efforts of all an object's makers, users, readers, owners, and destroyers give it more meaning and not less. Our perception of old books is a complex process separate from the complexity of reading itself. We don't just read books anymore. The reason we therefore turn to the study of early books is because they then, that is the makers and users of early books, were not just reading them either. In the early period, books were the locus of meditation and reflection. Why? Because the books served to remind one. The printed book served this purpose to a degree exponentially greater than the manuscript book because it was standardized, widely available, and had special capacities for combining images and texts. All books were an engine of memory and became so closely associated with and so useful in mental functions that they became a sort of symbol of the mind and even of the soul itself. With the printed book in the Renaissance, this became individualized. In her profound study, The Book of Memory, Mary Carruthers has argued that the medieval mind was memorial, whereas ours is documentary. In the memorial culture, the mind was stocked with numerous sayings and stories clustered around various subjects that were absorbed deeply by memorization, and that then informed the production of images and thoughts. 
In each person, these grew more from con the conscious and unconscious workings of his own mind than from external authority, whether it be empirical observation or the authoritative text. Text for us has become something like empirical observation, to be certified and verified by the science of text editing. It's an authority to which we appeal. But before the development of empirical ways of thinking, books stored the material that went into memory, whereas now memory stores temporarily what goes into the permanent written record. In the Middle Ages, this was reversed. The permanent record was in the mind. Ms. Carruthers has even shown many ways in which the illumination and calligraphy of medieval manuscripts were part of a memory system. I contend also that the system of rubrication and uh, woodcut decorative initials in early printed books are vestiges of memory systems and often serve to help the reader remember where passages were. In a remarkable article on the early devotional pamphlet called the Libellus, associated with the Franciscans in Italy, Anne Barreau has described this process, and I quote, the Libellus was the site of a continuing incarnation and a special mediation between the hand and the memory, between God and man. It quite literally functioned as a memorandum, an external aid to memory. It applies not to a Libellus or to a thick volume, but to the knowing mind. It signaled, it represented, somewhat as did liturgy. It originated a cultural tradition of the bedside book, a domestic and religious work which was both intimate and universal, small and exhaustive, a work to return to again and again, always held, always open, and a soul book." Unquote. All books were powerful forms of memory. It is only the religious character of devotional books that highlights their role as physical incarnation and as connector to the unseen. We must remember that memory was a loaded idea in the Renaissance. It was not a mechanical function, but a deep psychological and spiritual enterprise. When the printed book entered the scene and stepped powerfully into the psychodrama of memory, it became a symbol of the memory itself. Memory was understood to be a set of images by which one was reminded. Thus, the printed book was soon an image of images. And when it began to include illustrations as well as text, this di dialectic became immensely subtle and profound. When in the Renaissance a printed book reminded you of something, whether it was legal formulae or theological truth, the book itself was an image or symbol of memory and reflection. The printed book became in this way an image of the mind and the soul. Early books were complicated objects because they contained many images with differing yet related purposes. I propose that we see the ways in which books act as icons, that is, images with talismanic, magical, fetishistic, or thaumaturgic powers, as part of the pro that we see these powers as part of the process of reading and thinking. This is fairly obvious in the case of books with religious purposes. But even with books that transmit philosophical ideas, something of this remains serving as part of the propellant that fuels the book and moving ideas from one person or place to another. And as the printed book became the locus of scientific and philosophical debate, this added to its primitive powers a place of contemplation, reflection, and memory, albeit within the world of rational ordered knowledge that grew in the 17th and 18th centuries. And now that this world has become fully our own and has fully realized itself, it is casting off the last husk of the printed book and its book magic that remained clinging in shreds to its body. 
When we look at the late manuscript in the early printed book, we can see that from time to time it is treated as a material object marked by the presence of the sacred, that is, as a fetish. There's evidence of this even earlier when early manuscripts were fetishistically regarded. Coptic culture imputed magical powers to its manuscripts. In Jewish tradition, the book retains something of this magic it gained in the first millennium. Thus, Talmud is regarded as the most beautiful, involving, fulfilling endeavor to which life can be devoted. The libellus that Anne Barrow discussed, the libelli, were sometimes laid upon the altar like an icon. I quote again from her. When the book was read and handled, it produced once more the supernatural efficacy. The book here is an object to transmit the thaumaturgic powers described in its text for the propagation of the sacred. Reading, in this case, becomes a magical practice. The dual nature, theological and magical, of the hagiographic book made it a sacred object that one could manipulate. It takes its place among metals, pious images, and pilgrimage tokens. When it was read, leafed through, or put on display, it became a spiritual guide, along with breviaries, missals, and books of hours." Unquote. There are numerous instances of the way in which the book was regarded as having the power to instill immediate belief. For example, David Cressy says that, quote, even in austere New England, in a religious culture set firm against superstition, the physical bound volume, that is the Bible, possessed some of the attributes of a religious icon or talisman, unquote. The printed book was instrumental in changing these earlier forms of devotion into more modern forms, as Roger Chartier has shown, I quote from him. Silent reading, he said, radically transformed intellectual work, which in essence became an intimate activity, a personal confrontation with an ever-growing number of texts, a question of memorization and cross-referencing. It made possible a more personal form of piety, a more private devotion. The reading of books of magic became a paradigm for all reading, which had to be done in secret and which conferred upon the reader a dangerous power. Privately owned books and the place where they were kept and consulted commanded special attention." Unquote. It was this privacy of the book that made it an image of the human mind. Its text and images protected by a binding. It was the place wherein a person thought, contemplated, reasoned, and worshipped, independent and free to think and even to act. This book was not a wall to climb or an ocean to navigate, but was an object that people believed helped to make possible the power of the free thinking mind. Of course, many books were physical objects of little sentimental or even intellectual value. They were simply used or enjoyed and then discarded. But even when books reminded the reader of an age-old folktale cycle or what part of the horse to lance to cure its illness, they were functioning as tools of memory that presented images to the mind. And because of this, the book itself was an image of the mind, the moral parent or the curious farmer or the intellectual scientist or the worshiping soul. In the early period, relatively few publications were literary. Most dealt with one or more of the four basic occupations of man, none of which is literature. They are eating and drinking, sex and relations with family and community, making money and worshiping God. Since the book was itself a memory or could aid in memory, which was a matter of the images by which one was reminded and through which facts or ideas were fixed in memory, books symbolized the powers of the mind, whether these were put to concrete or to abstract uses. The early printed book contained many images for its reader. Knowledge was gained by marching from the known to the unknown 
along a train of stepping stone images. Throughout the Renaissance, there were numerous attempts to systematize imagery under a general Neoplatonic influence to give it a structure in which images could be manipulated so as to create or to fix knowledge. This was the aim of the systems of artificial memory. Later, these became mechanisms of rote memorization. But in the Renaissance, they were deeply tied to a worldview in which allegory and emblem revealed truth, in which the knower and the known were chained together by profound bonds and secret communications, in which the phantasms of the mind could be manipulated by wise and powerful persons so as to affect the real and external world. The symbolic values of books became geometrically more complicated when visual images were first introduced into books. In fact, one of the most glaring deficiencies of the study of early book illustration is that it has failed to consider this spiritual environment in which book illustration was invented and refined because it has largely been mired in an antique form of connoisseurship or choked in the limitations of standard art historical practice. As Chartier put it, I quote, the image was joined with text in a mobile relation of implication, proximity, and hierarchy. The question of the inherent force of the figure of reproduction of the reproduction of reproductions it is thus situated at the crossroads of the history of technology, the history of knowledge, and political history, unquote. Illustrations increased the potency of the book as an image of the soul. The printed book was an image full of images, at first only textual, but then both textual and visual. These worked at different levels and resonated with one another ever more effectively as techniques changed and grew. Thus, even the first illustrated books were richly layered semiotic experiences, rather like the great Dutch engraved political characters of the late 17th and early 18th centuries, where levels of text formed hypertext and commented on numerous figures that were themselves in complex relation to one another, as well as to the interfolded texts. The text helped to give images life and power, and images helped to give the text its life and power. The source of this power was the source of the power of the book, since the book comprised these several and many images. In his brilliant, if verbose study, The Power of Images, David Friedberg asks, quote, in what senses can images have the effectiveness attributed to them, unquote. He answers that they are perceived to be an incarnation of the transcendent that retains its real force. Thus, in images of the Virgin, the believer feels that the prototype, the Virgin herself, is actually fused with the image. Even this centuries-long polemic against images acknowledges the strength of this animistic belief by its protests against its supposedly harmful effects. An image reconstitutes a living being or brings its virtual or artistic reality alive with the power of physical living reality, as when a statue or image is suddenly complete and suddenly powerful because, as the last step in its manufacture, the eyes are inserted or painted in. The graphic image, both letter form and pictorial, may also have had power from having been touched by the original that is created by contact with the plate or block, which transferred to them authenticity and permanence by contact, as a seal affixed to a document made it official, or as touch had meaning in many, many areas of medieval life. Friedberg cites Proclus's explanation uh, of Plato's myth of creation in the Timaeus, and quote, the central theurgic, that is God-creating procedure, consisted of the concealing of symbols or tokens of the God within the statue of the God, 
itself in order to give it life or of inscribing certain characters on the image or of attaching phylacteries to it for the same purpose." Unquote. A book is like the living statue god created by Plato's demiurge. It is an image full of images that animate it. I propose that this is the deep background in which the early printed book was made and understood. And as throughout the Renaissance, the platonic play of ideas about reality and shadow, transcended and earthly, object and image, is woven in its, arts and its art and literature. So these platonic themes gave the printed book its animistic, iconic character until they were supplanted generally in Western culture by the different movements that led to modern science and philosophy. The early illustrated book can be seen as an attempt to fulfill this iconic nature of the book within the Renaissance idea of the relation, the Renaissance ideas of the relation of, of word and image. Ekphrasis is interesting in this regard. Ekphrasis was the practice of describing a painting or work of art in words. The words were a literal representation of the visual image. Sometimes art was based on such descriptions of earlier works of art. This was the system of some Renaissance imitation of lost works of antiquity. And one author has gone so far as to say that, quote, the history of Western art can be seen as a cycle of such exchanges, the intercalation of text and picture through the helix of time, image begetting image, unquote. I don't know about the whole history of Western art, but this idea provides an interesting approach to book illustration. Like Renaissance paintings, book illustration had to be legible. Picture and text were analogous, and they had twin functions in memory and learning. Both images and words had magical power, and the early printed book was a vessel for them that became standardized and widely available. In the culture of the early printed book, books were powerful psychological projections or psychic projections, reflections of the mysteries and the magic of the human soul. The texts and images described human passion and suffering, which seemed to animate the book until its images drew the soul of the reader or the owner into the book and drew the book into his soul. I would like to give three brief examples of the ways in which this line of th thinking can stimulate research. First, many early illustrated books can be seen as pattern books, whether they are lace pattern books or not. Thus, many illustrated editions of the Bible, of Ovid and Livy, were sources of design ideas in many decorative crafts. Detailed study of the paths of influence of book illustration as patterns will help in understanding books in the large context of decoration, collecting, and utility that has marked the relationship of persons to things in our civilization. With respect to bindings, there's been relatively little bindings in the 16th century may be a sign of this, since gold had been a symbol of the soul since prehistory. Whereas blind stamped ornaments seem sometimes as if they were dropped onto the book, guilt the core seems to come from within the book, glowing up and out through the binding, like as if it were the power of the book itself shining through. I suggest that the attraction to guilt decor developed within such a psychological context until much later when the technique became more and more stylized, superficial, and strictly decorative. The use of metals and precious stones, gilt, and other, other materials on medieval bindings also suggests the psychological power and presence of the book. Finally, it will be interesting to evaluate the history of book design in this context. What can we learn about the growth of book magic by the appearance of various kinds of book designers? 
exercising their art in different ways as printing became firmly established, ranging from imaginative artists like Geoffrey Torrey to intense scholars like Aldous Minutius, and from flamboyant eccentrics like Leonard Turnizer to sober essays like Henri Estienne. What can we learn about their concept of the book if we evaluate it in this more psychological and spiritual context? The blow book is a little-known specialized technique of book, book production, traceable to the 16th century that made a magic trick. Not many people have heard of it. A book is so constructed that when one flips its pages, one image, say a cup, appears. But then upon flipping what seems to be the very same pages, again, a different image, such as a bunch of grapes, appear. And then flipping the book again, all the pages are blank, and then another and another different figure appear. The blow book, I think, it's a good symbol of the mystery of the book objectified, made literal. With the blow book, the book itself is a mystery. It reveals itself slowly, concealing in its pages underneath the boards, many images and ideas. Often, the book itself, that is books of any sort, the book itself hides. Thus, Theodore Adorno recently note, noted how difficult it is to find a book that one has moved from its accustomed place on the shelf. This reconditeness is part of what he calls the physiognomy of the book its fate to be used, worn, and lost, expressed in its worn face. Due in turn, he says, to the fact that, quote, the book form signifies detachment, concentration, and continuity, anthropological characteristics that are dying out, unquote. And of course, there are numerous old stories of buried books, for example, that of Christian Rosenkreutz, buried in his tomb with his book, which is the founding legend of the Rosicrucian movement. Today, the power of the book as an expressive object is revealed when it is no longer wholly a useful object. We can see clearly, we can see more clearly the emotional powers that bind us to the book. The printed book is an image of the soul, a powerful psychic projection by the soul that expresses the hidden mysteries of its life. In the mass reproduction made possible by the press, images were standardized and widely distributed. But most of all, they were given immortality. Today, all images have become irrevocable. Through television, we are the greatest magicians ever in manipulating phantasms so as to change reality. The reproductive media have done for all sensation what the press began to do for visual images. The source of this history, of the historical self-consciousness, of our transcendent environment of images, of our exploding oceans of data, lies in the printed book. It was an image of the word, of text, of memory, of images, of knowledge, of the mind, and of the soul, and has remained such an image as Western society became more rational and literal through the centuries. These thoughts are a report on my efforts to make sense of the business of old books. Over the last 15 years, I have often felt that we, curators and collectors and dealers, were rather like monks and nuns in some religious community isolated in a vast ancient structure on top of a craggy hill. Inside, we scurried around, moving statues, paintings, altars, and relics, and icons of every kind, from the great nave to the painted chapel to dark reliquary, from one room to another. All these rooms and the objects in them are beautiful, but mysterious and of unexplained utility. There seemed no order to our movements, but only the sense that the task in general was worthwhile, although the particular movements had no pattern. I do not yet know the particulars have any logic or pattern, but I have tried to think about why the labors of this community are worthwhile. 
it seems that they are worthwhile because of the strong psychological or spiritual basis underlying the attraction to old books. And because this basis is one approach to the world of shadows and images that rules us, even as we attempt to navigate the ocean of information. Thank you. I wish to go from the sublime by way of a detour to the ridiculous. The detour is, of course, this room. Those of you who are here for the first time tonight uh, will please notice that many of the Book Arts Press collections are in the shelves on its walls. When the room was restored to its original appearance in the mid-1970s, books, any books, were put on the walls in order to make it look like a library. But the Book Arts Press uh, thought it could, it could do better than that, and through the generosity of the Alderman Library, it has. But, and now turning to the ridiculous, the jewel of our crown is directly behind me. I apologize to those who were here last week. You're going to be able to say this in unison, I suspect, before you're too much older. About two years ago, just in fact before Rare Book School 1991, UCLA sent us, almost unsolicited, a gift of 136 copies of a long novel in verse called Lucille. Lucille was written, or published, I should say, in 1860, and was written by Owen Meredith, a pseudonym for one of Lord uh, Lytton's children, who in fact went on himself to have a distinguished political career as Viceroy of India. He was a popular society poet of his time and widely read. Marianne Malkin, who was here last week, does not admit ever to having read Lucille herself, but she did, having been born in 1913, she said, know quite a few people who had read it. It was a book that her mother's generation knew. It is a story of two star-crossed lovers who almost get together again ten years later in the Pyrenees, but don't. And it is rather dashing, but it is also in heroic couplets, and it is 6,000 lines long, which is more than twice the length of King Lear. It was popular to a degree that now defies comprehension. <laughs> the 136 editions given to us by UCLA were all published in this country before 1900, 1901. And of the 136, 132 were unique. They were all different. There were four duplicates. While we are absorbing this collection, which was in poor condition, a bookseller called UCLA and said that they had a marvelous collection illustrative of the history of the book in America before 1901, all of the same title that UCLA would never have heard of. The dealer. Arundel Books in Los Angeles had a customer whose, wife, whose wife's name was Lucille. UCLA admitted to no interest in this title, but said that they knew of somebody who would certainly be interested. So for $5 a volume, Book Arts Press acquired 102 additional pre-1901 American copies of Lucille. Now, as Henry Huntington has taught us, the really proper way 
to assemble a library is to buy collections. We are now up to, and, to 238 copies of Lucille with, at this point, 14 duplicates. We then looked around and discovered that we had more than 20 Lucilles in our own collections, which we had never noticed. <laughs> and those of you who know the Book Arts Press Collections know how easy this is to do. We thought of it as a blue and yellow book, or as a book in a ridiculous binding, or a very good one even. But we continued to add to the collection, and indeed there are a number of people in this audience and elsewhere who have added to the collection with increasing ferocity, with the result that when somebody asked me today how many Lucilles came in this week, I said six. We now have uh, present in this room all of them for you to look at with the exception of this week's six, which, to finish my story, are off to Tulsa, because lo and behold, Sid Hutner, who is the curator of rare books at the University of Tulsa, has long been a collector of Lucille. He has 98 editions of Lucille. If you put his collection together with ours, which for a magic moment that was Camelot, they were this summer because we sent him our entire collection as it came in for him to catalog, we had 300 well over 300 editions of Lucille, including 250 different editions of a pre-1901 American text. The British edition seemed to be far less common, though it is a well-known poem in England. I know of no Lucille collectors, but no doubt if there are any collections loose, they will hear of me soon enough. It is, in fact, a collection marvelously representative of the history of the book, and representative of the uh, passion of the Book Arts Press for collecting books in multiple copies. It goes without saying that all of you are earnestly invited to join in this endeavor. As an incentive, I've opened the cases to Lucille, which are in an order approximately first by city of publication and then by publisher, so that you can see them. They're in the open cases behind me. After you have uh, drunk deep of Lucille, then I hope you will help yourselves and others recover by adjourning to the first floor staff lounge, Alderman West, first floor, for a drink with the speaker. And thank you for coming. I'll see you tomorrow night.